Happy Purim, everyone. I'm Tamar Yona. The Purim holiday is a joyful and fun holiday where children as well as adults dress up in costumes and eat, drink, and be merry. Nearly 2,000 years ago in Persia, a mean and powerful man named Haman wanted to kill all the Jews in the kingdom because one man, Mordechai the Jew, refused to bow down to him. Mordechai's niece was the beautiful Queen Esther. With God's help, Esther won favor in the Persian king's heart and saved the Jewish people from almost certain annihilation. On Purim, Jews go to synagogue and hear the reading of the Megillah scroll, which is the story of Purim. It is a custom to wear masks and costumes on this day and to give baskets of food and delicacies to the poor. The staff at Israel National Radio wishes all its listeners a joyful Purim filled with laughter and merriment. is no hide nations i'm your co-host jim long and your host ray Patterson. hi ray how you doing jim i'm doing wonderful thanks for asking it's great to be here with you it's great to be with the listeners it's uh, great to be with our upcoming guest i'm i'm very excited so shalom to everybody right you know we have a very interesting guest this week he is rabbi moshe genuth and uh, you have offered an invitation to him to come on the air and speak to us so why don't you go ahead and introduce the rabbi to the listeners uh, folks, Rabbi Moshe Ganuth is with us today, and we're going to be speaking to him on a book that he was one of the editors on. Uh, the book is titled Kabbalah and Meditation for the Nations. And for those of you who are aware, the author of this book is Rabbi Yitzhak Ginsberg. And he, of course, has authored a great many books, uh, some of which include the Hebrew letters, uh, the mystery of marriage, awakening the spark within, uh, living in divine space, uh, body, mind, and soul, and in a, a great many, many books. And if you just do a, a keyword search online for Rabbi Ginsberg, you will find all of his books uh, available in Hebrew and English. And I'm sure we're going to find out they might even be available in other languages. Well, anyway, without any further ado, Rabbi Moshe Ganuth, it is great to have you here. Thank you very much, Ray. Well, Rabbi, I wanted to kind of start things off here because in, in my excitement, I, I wrote down a, a number of different questions, and I'm fairly certain we're not going to be able to get to them all. But you are one of the editors for Rabbi Ginsburg, and, and I'm curious, number one, how long have you been editing his works? And uh, for me, more importantly, what is that like to, to work with a man like this? Um, it's uh, probably my favorite topic to talk about, Ray. <laughs> um, <laughs> really see this as a, as a mission in life to work with uh, the Rav, Rav Um I've known him for 14 years now, since 1995. And I think the, the very first time that I met him, I asked him, uh, so now that I've heard something, is there anything uh, that I can do for you? <laughs> and uh, the next morning we were already sitting down and writing something. Uh, and uh, pretty much been doing that for, for the last 14 years, been doing other things as well. In the last uh, three or four years I've been uh, completely dedicated just to uh, working on his work and editing it and uh, translating some of it into English and some of it is originally in English and uh, preparing it for uh, books. 
Um, what is it like to work for the Rav? Well, the, the most important thing about Rav is uh, what we call him Rav um, is um, is that he's not just a uh, a regular teacher in, in, in the sense of uh, transmitting uh, knowledge. He's uh, truly an inspiration. I think uh, a very unique inspiration. Uh, the process that we go through is uh, starts always from some kind of some lecture that he's given or is giving. Um, he gives about one or two lectures a week. Uh, during the last few years, it's been about one or two a week, but we have over 15,000 uh, archived lectures. And from the lecture itself, we try to uh, to get some kind of transcript, some basic. Uh, uh, a backbone for uh, for what's going to happen next, and what happens next is truly amazing. It turns out that the lectures are just a, a starting point, sort of like an opening shot for <laughs> what's going to happen. And this is the thing that I I've experienced so many times, and it, it amazes me time and time again is that when the Rav takes a transcript from a lecture, he suddenly begins to open it up, and the only way that I can describe what happens is that you begin to sense the infinity within. And uh, a true uh, example of what it means that the Torah is infinite, that it's wider than the uh, sea and wider than the earth. And the process is very long. It's really grueling in in certain sense. And you're ready to give up a few times because every time that you edit something and you bring it to the Rav, you send it back to you with just full, not of editing comments, but more and more and more insight into what's been written already. So it just keeps getting deeper and deeper from time to time. And this is the thing that I uh, I usually share with my wife, is this, this feeling that you're always touching, you're always on the brink of an infinite infinite feeling that there's more and more here, that if he would just be given more time, it would just get bigger and bigger. So really, in the end, uh, writing a book for him is a limiting process. It's, not, it's, it's more than just editing. It's, it's trying to encapsulate uh, some ideas and, and bring them together. So obviously, even though we've, we've written a book called Kabbalah and Meditation for the Nations, it's really just really a small sampling of what the Rav has taught over the years, uh, the Torah that drove into uh, to non-Jews. Rabbi Gunud, I'm just uh, for on a technical level. I'm just kind of wondering uh, if if a person were to attend these classes uh, in Yerushalayim, uh, those classes are actually in Hebrew, aren't they? Most of the Rebbe's classes are in Hebrew. Uh, the ones given in uh, in Israel in the land of Israel are almost entirely in Hebrew. Um, the way that he works is that they're usually not in one place. He goes from uh, one place to another wherever he's invited to to speak. Um, when he's invited to the United States, the classes are in English, at least most of them. And uh, so on our website, uh, inner.org, uh, inner.org, we have uh, some videotapes of, uh, of classes in English and recordings of classes in English. Actually, uh, just today we added a whole new section on evolution, which is a seminar that he gave in Israel uh, three years ago, which is in English, and uh, deals with the topic of evolution from a Torah perspective. So there's, uh, there, there's many, many things. And like Ray mentioned before, some of the books have been translated into other languages. Uh, three of the books have been translated into Spanish already. And the fourth book in Spanish is actually Kabbalah Meditation for the Nations, which uh, was just completed uh, a week ago. 
It's uh, just about ready for print now. We're working on the uh, cover. Uh, so that's going to be available now in Spanish. Um, there's a number of there's two books that have been translated into French. Uh, one book has been translated into Russian, and uh, we're hoping that with uh, uh, we actually have uh, some friends in Italy that have been translating uh, articles into Italian. Um, we've done uh, an article or two in Romanian now, and uh, we hope that uh, as the influence begins to continues to spread and, and uh, more and more people are moved by uh, this Torah, that uh, we get more contributions in uh, more languages. Well, you know, I, I hate, with all the the availability of, of Rabbi Ginsburg's works, I, I'm a little embarrassed to tell you that I I have have not read any of his books, and I haven't even read the book that we're talking about today. But it does have a very interesting and an intriguing title, and I can see why that uh, that Ray suggested you for a guest to talk about uh, Rabbi Ginsburg's book, the the book Kabbalah and the Meditation of the Nations, uh, or rather, Meditation for the Nations. For the Gentiles, uh, did, did the rabbi write this uh, hoping that the Jewish people would be able to learn more about the role of Noahides, or did he, did he just simply target Noahides uh, in this particular book? You know, you know, that's an excellent question. The answer is that the audience is both uh, Jews and non-Jews. Um, obviously, the main audience is non-Jews. But, like you said, there is a great deal of, uh, of uh, either a lack of knowledge or even uh, uh, false knowledge, even with, uh, between Jews, regarding our role when it comes to the nations of the world. In, in fact, uh, if you just have some uh, random Orthodox Jew, how, how, inter- how involved and how uh, important it is, to, how involved he is and how important it may be, even if he's not involved, to uh, influence uh, the nations of the world to keep the seven uh, Noahide laws. Uh, he may have heard of what the seven Noahide laws are, but th- there is a feeling in the Jewish people um, that they're not relevant for whatever reason. There's many, many reasons why people yeah. feel this, but uh, there's definitely a lack of uh, information and, uh, and requires a lot of rectification on our part. So when it comes to uh, when it comes to teaching uh, the seven Noahide laws to uh, the nations of the world and, and, and getting them to recommit to them, it's definitely uh, written with the Jewish audience in mind. Um, but you know, this is really to really answer this question, I have to, I have to go a little bit deeper and, and say that it's really impossible to talk about the seven Noahide laws and talk about uh, the, the, the aspects of Torah that are relevant to non-Jews without talking at the same time to Jews. And the reason is that uh, the Torah view of reality is, is that reality is one, just as God is one. And we're all in, on the same boat. And, you know, with the uh, pictures of Earth from space, you know, that, that uh, cliche has become more of, a, more of an image. We're all flying through space together on the same uh, planet. But more than that, we're also flying through spiritual space together. And uh, if you let me just spend a little bit, a couple of minutes on this uh, to explain some of the spiritual background of how we see the relationship between Jews and non-Jews, um, there's basically two two very different uh, worldviews today, which are uh, battling it out uh, for our hearts and minds. And I would say that one is the pluralistic point of view, and the other is more of a centralized point of view of how reality functions. Uh, the pluralistic point of view would just say that, you know, there's, there's many 
God is one, but he has many names. And, uh, and uh, pluralists would usually, even if they don't uh, disagree with religion per se, will simply say some, you know, this religion has some of the truth and that religion has some of the truth and so on. That's not the Torah's perspective, and that's not what uh, we were given in Mount Sinai. Uh, the Torah's perspective can be better described as something of a cone, as if all of all of all sentient beings and all and all beings in general are, are placed somewhere along the cone that is uh, turned upside down, sort of like a clown's hat. The tip of the cone is is infinitely high, and that represents the infinite itself. And we're all situated somewhere on this cone. The idea being that there are more central and higher uh, states of being than others. And the role that the Jewish people play is, is that we have the task of pulling everybody up with us as we ascend. This is a, a very important concept in the, in the mythical side of Torah, the inner dimension, called the elevation of worlds that everything in, in reality is constantly striving to manifest more and more of the divine, more and more of God. And you really can't do that by yourself. You can't do it by yourself, not part of, if you're a Jew, if you're not part of the Jewish people, you have to feel the connection, and not just feel the connection, but arrive at a unified state, uh, united Jewry, if you will. And you also can't do that on your own if you're a non-Jew. You have to be connected in some way to whoever's higher than you, which in this case, uh, the people who received the Torah at Mount Sinai, the Jewish people, and God's chosen people. And then as everything is moving up, uh, sometimes even you get that, uh, like in this case, and maybe that non-Jews are even pushing from behind and telling the Jews, look, you have to do a better job at what your job is, which is to elevate the world, which is to bring us all closer to God. And uh, sometimes you see that there are non-Jews who are more aware of the need to ascend this cone, to, to, to go higher and higher, than even some Jews who are you know, a little bit awake, uh, asleep still and uh, haven't been uh, awakened to the uh, real calling. Uh, the other side of the coin is that there's also a social aspect to addressing Jews and non-Jews at the same time, because really, uh, like I said, most Jews are either ignorant or misinformed about the role that we have in, uh, in uh, encouraging the nations to keep the seven Ohio laws and to come closer to God through this covenant that they have with him. And for real, really for, for the Noahide movement to take off, there has to be a lot of, a lot of cooperation. Uh, this is not just something that has to happen with, within the non-Jewish world. This is something that has to change also within the Jewish world. And uh, I'm sure we'll have plenty of opportunities to, to talk about what, what could possibly change and what we need to change in order for the Noahide movement to be more and more successful and to, and to play a more central role in the, in the spirituality of the world. Rabbi, wouldn't you, wouldn't you say that uh, that, that uh, concept really extends itself e- even in the material realm in the way that the Western world, uh, the governments of the Western world, all tend to have a separation of what they call church and state, whereas in, in the Torah concept of the government, at least for the people of Israel, there is literally, again, there is this unifying factor. There is no separation between the Torah, what, what, what will eventually be the Torah form of government, and the, uh, the nation of Israel. 
it's 100% true. Dealing or, or, or having a political system that doesn't uh, take into account the, the divine is sort of like having a body without a soul. Right. And, or, I mean, we, both, we all have bodies with souls, with a spiritual aspect and a, and, and a material aspect. And ignoring one or the other in the end leads to, to dissonance and to confusion and to, in the end, just chaos. Uh, it, um, you know, um, th there's a strong belief that uh, government in and of itself can be secular because we're looking only for order. Order in the sense that people don't uh, do whatever they want and, you know, I don't have to worry, or hopefully don't have to worry about walking along uh, along the sidewalk and somebody coming and attacking me because we're all afraid of the establishment. We all have a, a certain sense of, of uh, belonging to, to an orderly system. But order is not the same thing as justice. And the Torah is very specific that to have justice, you need to have God. You could have order without God. You could have a, a you know, what we call a civilization, a civilized state of, of, of life. But in the end, we're looking for more than that. We're not just looking for protection in the sense that to be free of fears, that's the lowest common denominator. A human being is looking for something more, which is a higher common denominator that we all share, which is we're looking for that which is beyond the material. We're looking for the infinite. We're looking for something spiritual. And we were all created with this yearning uh, you know, sometimes you can call it psychological, but really that doesn't deter from the fact, it doesn't take anything from the fact that it's a very real feeling and a, real, a very real sense that we all have, that there's something more than just getting by. There's something more than just leading a quiet life. Because in the end, we are looking for something unique and wondrous and that causes us to be inspired to be revealed in our lives. And a society that, that is joined together in that search is exactly a society that knows how to combine the divine element with the mundane element. Uh, Rabbi, you mentioned something that caught my attention uh, regarding order and justice. And it reminds me of uh, uh, the Rambam in his uh, uh, Mishnah Torah, where he states that uh, uh, we can certainly follow the seven Noahide laws if we do so precisely and because Hashem the, the divine told us to follow these and he provided them we as uh, Noahides will have a place in the world to come and it's not the case for somebody who just follows them uh, because they sound good and they make sense and by default would bring about order if everyone were to follow it. So that was interesting that you pointed that out. And uh, you mentioned uh, uh, even prior to that about the, the Noahides, uh, this, uh, this idea of them pushing uh, on, on the Jewish community for for some help to to get into the game. You know, we're here. We're not going away. And you know, it's it's forced a lot of rabbis to start uh, uh, digging for this information. And yet, I I know that Rabbi Ginsburg on his website uh, at uh, inner dot org uh, he has some emphasis on the Noahide laws and reaching out to the Gentiles, which uh, I find you know very refreshing and, and very uh, commendable. But at the same time, as, as you probably well know, there's much controversy about you know, who should you know, study uh, Kabbalah and who shouldn't. 
And in, in fact, there are, are parameters that were set forth by the sages that, that in order for one to study, they have to have a firm foundation in all aspects of Torah. Uh, they have to be 40 years old. They have to be married, uh, etc. Et and, and yet knowing this, uh, I have to ask, why did Rabbi Ginsburg decide to write Kabbalah and Meditation for the Nations? What you're asking is a, is a general question. It's not just about this book. It's about every single book that uh, the Rebbe has written over the last uh, 25 years. Right. And uh, just to give you an idea, maybe I haven't mentioned this uh, earlier, um, the, 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 the books in English are really just a picking from the books in Hebrew. And in English, thank God, we have already 13. But in Hebrew, there's over 65. And, uh, like I said, thousands of lectures, and most of them today are written up and uh, transcribed and immediately distributed to thousands of people by email a few hours after uh, the lecture is given. There's a lot of demand for this uh, teaching. Uh, this, this, this falls into, into, into the answer for, to the question you're asking, which, again, is a general question, why do we need uh, to be talking about Kabbalah today? Um, it's usually considered to be the esoteric part of the Torah, maybe uh, uh, the hidden part of the Torah. It has many names. Um, the, the simple idea is that um, Kabbalah, like everything in, in Torah, has many, many sides to it. Now, there's a particular side to it that, if I can uh, quote uh, Rabbi Dean Steinzelt, also one of my teachers, he, uh, he once uh, was speaking at a rabbinical conference in, uh, in the United States, and he sort of began his talk by saying Kabbalah is the official theology of the Torah, the official theology of the Jewish people. And since these were rabbis, he said, so why are you not teaching Kabbalah in your congregations? Because really without Kabbalah it's impossible to speak serious Jewish theology. Even those books that don't mention the concepts explicitly, and, and you know, there's a place for that also, not to... You don't always have to start off with the exact uh, words that the sages use. Sometimes you can paraphrase and you can give it all kinds of nice modern words, and, and, and some sages and past generations have done that. Still, in the end, it all takes from what we call this body of knowledge called uh, Kabbalah. Now, the, the things that you mentioned regarding uh, some limitations and open study and so on and so forth, it's, it's pretty much accepted across the board except for very few, uh, very few people who, who don't see it this way, but pretty much across the board, that these limitations, um, first of all, they have to do with a very specific part of Kabbalistic teaching, uh, some of which even no one can study today because it requires a certain level of, of purity, uh, uh, spiritual purity that we can't reach without the uh, the holy temple in place. And just... uh, can you hold that thought? Because we are running out of time in in this segment. Uh, we we are under the parameters of you know uh, the broadcast on the internet, and we have to take time out for news and commercials and things like that. So I hate to be so insensitive to to stop you when you're on a roll, but uh, we do want to hear more about this particular concept about teaching uh, Torah and especially Kabbalah. Uh, to folks who uh, didn't meet those parameters. And we'll explore that coming up with uh, Rabbi Moshe Ganut uh, right after this break on IsraelNationalRadio.com.
Mom, can I have a cookie? Okay, maybe just one, sweetie. Thanks, Mom. Hey, they're all gone. What are they? No more cookies? Who took the last one? Mom? Gilly's Goodies, the best home-baked cookies, cakes, and pies in Israel. This Purim, send a Gilly's Goodies care package to an Israeli soldier. Just go to gillysgoodies.com. That's G-I-L-I-S goodies.com. Gilly's Goodies, so good, they're gone. This is Jenny. I'm here at Israel National Radio. I'm so happy and、uh, God bless Israel. 大家好，我是廖文玲，现在是在 Israel Radio Station 这里。I really、uh, encourage everyone to come back to the Israel, and this is a holy land. This is Israel National Radio. I'm happy. God bless this place, protect this place, and be wisdom always. You're listening to IsraelNationalRadio.com. Welcome back to the Noahide Nation show here on Israel National Radio. I'm Ray Patterson, and my co-host is Jim Long. And Hi there. Today we, we've got a, a, a very fascinating conversation and discussion going on with、uh, the one of the editors for Rabbi Yitzhak Ginsburg, and this fine gentleman's name is Rabbi Moshe Ganuth. And just prior to the break, we were discussing the uh, uh, ideas of who can study Kabbalah, who can't study Kabbalah, and the and the and the whys and what fors of that. So, Rabbi. I'd like to, you know, bring you back in here to kind of finish those thoughts that you were sharing with us right up to the break. Right. So what we were talking about is that the limitations、uh, that existed on uh, on uh, studying Kabbalah. First of all, they had to do mostly with、uh, certain areas, which、uh, even today、uh, people won't get into. It's called practical Kabbalah, and、uh, that's because it simply requires a level of Spiritual purity that we can't have before we have the red hefa and、uh, other things that have to do with the holy temple in Jerusalem. The the other limitations that were placed were, you know, the, the sort of limitations that today people meet them in and of themselves. And the whole idea was to prevent people from from making God into an idol. And because Kabbalah uses in, in various areas of its、uh, discussion a lot of metaphors, there's a lot of fear that、uh, the metaphors would be misunderstood, not understood as metaphors, and that people would go away thinking that、uh, they could describe God in、uh, mundane terms.、Uh, most of that is not a problem today. It doesn't、uh, it doesn't seem that people are affected in this way. The truth being that. You could be affected this way if you study Kabbalah outside of、uh, outside of certain uh, sources. Um, the one stipulation that still needs to happen is that you have to have an authentic source to learn from, somebody who's a true uh, a, a true uh, student of the Torah, a true、uh, scholar, and not just a true scholar in the intellectual sense, but also somebody who is、uh, is 100% devoted to the Torah's commandments, somebody who leads his life. In the way that the Torah prescribes, and the way that God has prescribed His will in the Torah. Once these things happen, or once you meet these、uh, requirements, then on the contrary, the Kabbalah is is probably the only real answer today、um, to the questions that people have. Meaning, not not that you can't find other answers, but、uh, we see out of experience that the other answers, or answers that were fine for Previous generations 
simply don't cut it today. They don't, they don't convince us enough. They don't get down to the core of the question that we're asking. They don't touch us, uh, if I may say, existentially in, in, in a way that they can uh, promote and encourage the same type of feeling, the same type of connection, the bond with God that the language of Kabbalah is able to do. Um, there used to be also an idea that you had to be 40 years old. Uh, even though I'm saying it like lightly, some of these things are written in, in, in the Shulchan Aruch, at least in the name of, uh, of some authorities. Uh, we know that the greatest uh, masters of Kabbalah were, uh, most of them passed away before they were 40. You can mention a few of the Rabbi Isaac Luria, the Rizal, who's the greatest uh, Kabbalist since uh, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Um, the Ramchal, the Moshe Chaim Yitzhakro, and the Nachman of Breath, all, uh, all these great sages uh, passed away before they were 40 years old. Uh, a few years ago, let me just give you uh, a small anecdote. A few years ago, I was with, uh, with uh, Rev Ginsburg in Stanford. He was giving a talk about heliocentrism versus geocentrism in Torah. And at the end of the lecture, somebody asked a very similar question. You know, I'm not... Uh, don't you have to be 40 years old, or even some opinion 70 years old, in order to uh, in order to study and engage in this type of uh, teaching? So the rabbi looked at him and said, "Looking at you, I think you're about 2,000 years old." And <laughs> the person immediately got what he said. Like, it's true that we're young, maybe in body, but the world is older now, <laughs> and we're also older now. We're all we're all We've all been here many, many times, and, and trying to get the the right uh, the right information requires today a going deeper into a theological language that only uh, Kabbalah can offer. I'm I'm always kind of curious about this because I've read this and I know I mean I think Mike come uh, Rabbi Arya Kaplan comes to mind when I think about this. Uh, he he passed away. Is is there an explanation from from the Chazal from the sages? as to why this phenomena occurs, that, that people get deeply, that seem to get elevated in their studies and even in their path uh, towards uh, their walk towards Hashem, why they pass away so early. What What is the explanation for that? Or is there? You have to understand that, that, uh, <laughs> that the brighter the light, the shorter it lasts. <laughs> this is a certain... It's sort of like a flash on a camera. Um, you, you want to illuminate darkness in order to take a photograph. You have to have a very strong source of light, but because it's so strong, it's very hard to keep it going for a long time. Um, the, the type of people that, that were real luminaries, um, especially when it comes to the mystical aspects of the Torah, uh, in a certain sense, they're like flashes of light in the darkness. And uh, it takes a toll. It's not, it's not a simple thing. Uh, I don't think that they led simple lives also. Um, it demanded from them uh, a tremendous uh, sacrifice because they didn't just come down to uh, to uh, lead their own personal lives, which is why we know about them. You know, there's been many billions of, of people in the world, and we don't know anything about them. About these people, we know a great deal, and especially we know a great deal about what they taught. So the type of life that they led was very taxing. It wasn't it? Wasn't a simple life at all. And again, it's 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 a gift from God to the world. Revealing himself in such a way as, a, as, a, as such a sage, as such a luminary, 
but it also usually doesn't last very long. Yeah, you know, I think of uh, I think of uh, of Hanok of of Enoch when we talk about people like that. I mean, of all the antediluvian, three hundred sixty-five years old. Is yeah, but no, no. But I mean, what I'm saying is, when you compare what the reason I, I invoke the image of of Hanok of Enoch is because compared to the other antediluvian uh, figures, he lived the shortest lifespan of any of them. And he truly was considered. I mean, it says he walked with. Yeah, and he, you know, he had this, and it says then he then he was no more. He walked with Hashem. So I, I, I thought that was a very interesting kind of connection between the idea of a great sage who gives so much, and we know that uh, from the midrash uh, that uh, Enoch was like that. And and so to me, there is a parallel there. I didn't want to interrupt you, but I thought it was fascinating to, that connection. But anyway, uh, Ray, did you have a, a, another question for the rabbi? Because I was uh, just rambling. No, of course, I've, I've, I've got so many here. I don't know, you know, which one to go next. But let's, well, maybe I'll, we'll, maybe we'll work with this one here because this is all just fascinating uh, for me. And uh, Rabbi, in uh, uh, your own uh, editor's notes, you had referred back to uh, Rabbi uh, Israel Balsham Tov of blessed memory, who was the founder of the Hasidic movement, and that he stated that the laws of B'nai Noah given by Hashem for all mankind create a bond of responsibility between the Jewish people and the nations of the world. And, and I found this concept to be very intriguing and was, was really looking forward to this uh, uh, interview to, to hopefully have you elaborate that a little bit more deeply on, on this whole idea. It's a, an excellent uh, place to uh, to start talking about uh, the bond, uh, mentioning uh, the founder of the Hasidic movement, uh, the Holy Baal Shem Tov. Um, the basic idea here is that the, the more spiritually sensitive a person is, and uh, I think that the Baal Shem Tov is probably <laughs> the best example that we've had in, in the past generations, in the, in the recent generations, the more revealed the unity of God in creation. And the more there's a feeling that everything is unified, the more there's an understanding that we're all connected together. Um, the Baal was probably, if you would be searching for the founder of the Jewish ecolog- ecological movement, the, the Jewish green movement, you would turn to the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov was famous for talking about the need to, to respect nature, and uh, not just respect nature, but... Um, sharing a, or, or experiencing the feeling of sharing a common destiny with everything in the world. Um, one of the famous uh, parables or examples to get this across to people was that even a leaf that falls off a tree and how it falls and where it falls and if it lands on, for instance, an, uh, an ant or some other uh, insect and covers it up from, uh, from from being hot from the sun, that too is divine providence. Divine providence is in everything. And that's the feeling of common destiny that we have, that, that we should have, that we're all being looked upon by, by our Creator. And the Creator permeates everything and surrounds everything, is in everything and is around everything, surrounding everything. And the more spiritually sensitive a person is, the more he feels this common bond with everything else in the world. Now, there's bonds at different levels. There could be a bond like that I share with uh, with every with all of nature. I'm also an, another creature in the world, and I have nothing 
more in a certain respect than any other creature. I don't have any other privilege. I don't. I'm not more privileged, per se, um, when it comes to my to the matter that I, I, I share with the rest of the world. Uh, I'm made out of atoms, and everything else is made out of atoms. And, and every, everybody who's listening to the show, and and everybody who's ever lived here, is all made out of the same matter. But there's also the spiritual aspect that we talked about before that creates the tone that 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 uh, that, in, that that creates a hierarchy of beings in the world. <coughs> and the ladder, as it were, or the the rope that connects us in the spiritual sense, has to come from Torah, in, in, in one way or another. For instance, uh, when, uh, as Jews, when we, when we marry, the power to marry is taken from, from God, from the Torah. It's true that two people can commune together, they become, can become a couple, without the need for something spiritual to enter, but... The real bond, the depth of the bond, again, what we were talking about before, is like maybe a sense of justice, but not just legal justice, but also justice in the sense of, of, of closeness, of, of, uh, of joint responsibility, of, of a connection that goes beyond just that we share something uh, material. That stems out of the, the spiritual aspect of the world, which God gave us through the Torah, or revealed to us through the Torah. The spiritual aspect has always been here, but to say it in words, to, to make it something uh, tangible, something that can be grasped by the mind, that's the purpose of the Torah. When it comes to the relationship between Jews and non-Jews, so the relationship is just, is just like we said before, we're all in the same boat. But to make the, the relationship one of responsibility, there has to be some Torah aspect to it. And the Torah aspect to it is, is, is very simple. Even though these laws were given long before the Torah was, was given at Mount Sinai, many generations earlier. Uh, in fact, uh, 17 generations, good generations uh, uh, earlier to Noah, uh, and they were even given before, 26 generations earlier to Adam. And six of the laws were given originally to Adam, and then one more was added to Noah, and the whole thing was reiterated to Noah, so it's named after him. So as much as this was in the world before, it was restated or re-given, reiterated as a responsibility of the Jewish people to give to the world through the Torah. And that immediately creates a spiritual bond, not just a, not just a sharing of a common destiny that we're all in the same boat, but one that we're all striving to climb the same ladder. We're all striving to come closer to God. We're all striving to create a more just society. We're all striving together to manifest the infinite side of our soul and bring it out. And, again, this is, this is the spiritual sensitivity of somebody like the Baal Shem Tov, who immediately felt that if I'm going to give the relationship that I have with non-Jews a Torah, a, a, godly, a, a, a godly title, then the title is the laws of Bnei Noach. It's the thing that I can share with a non-Jew and... I can give to him, and it will create a bond of responsibility between us. That's absolutely uh, beautiful. In fact, uh, as you were describing it, it reminded me of a, a movie. I don't know if you've seen it or Jim or any of the listeners, but uh, The Last Samurai with uh, uh, Tom Cruise. 
and it was uh, about this great leader of a, of a samurai tribe and uh, through the whole movie he was just totally taken by the uh, I believe it was a lotus blossom tree and for the life of him you stand back it's a beautiful tree but he couldn't understand why some of the leaves seemed so much deficient and, and, and uglier than the beautiful leaves and it goes through the whole movie he's questioning this and on his last day as he's dying he looks up at Tom Cruise with the the wisdom in his eyes that they are all beautiful and and I, I think what you just uh, described for us there is is uh, right in line with with that type of thing there there is nothing that's diminished uh, there's nothing that is is uh, uh, elevated for anyone we are all the same we are all from the uh, same place and uh, the way you presented it was just uh, uh, absolutely beautiful there's one more point I wanted to make that sure. ties into the previous question um, again the importance of, of the of the of, of uh, presenting the Noahide laws, and maybe we'll get a chance to talk more about this later, but presenting them in the context of what, what, what Kabbalah had to say about it, what Jewish theology, what Jewish mysticism has to say about it, and the importance of that. Um, I, I was sort of, a, you know, I wanted to get to it before, but it didn't really come out. There's, you know, Kabbalah has become a, uh, a word that uh, <laughs> really. Um, it sort of like entered pop culture, and um, everything that enters pop culture is, on the one hand, maybe the the uh, lowest way to describe it, and on the other hand, it does have some some inkling of, of what the real thing was before it entered the pop culture. But when it comes to Torah, pop culture is very problematic. You can do pop culture with Torah, but it's not clear that you can make sure that that you don't become yourself uh, a, a, a believer in pop culture. What I'm trying to say is that uh, Kabbalah today is, is, is definitely uh, a pop culture term because it's being taught to non-Jews as well as to Jews. And let me try to give some, uh, some context to what I'm saying without saying it uh, too bluntly. Um, two years ago, I had a chance to attend a conference in San Diego on Kabbalah for the Nations. It was a very interesting, <laughs> very interesting uh, concept that was uh, run by uh, a friend of mine, Yaakov Travis, from Cleveland. And the discussion was around the question about whether Kabbalah should be taught to non-Jews. And, and uh, this may sound surprising to you, but I was the only voice there who said, absolutely not. <laughs> And but but I explained what I meant when I said absolutely not. Kabbalah is is sort of like the intimate talk between a husband and wife, um, if you want a metaphor. Uh, the the aspect of the Torah that includes our intimate conversation, the Jewish people's intimate conversation with God, is, is Kabbalah. That's that's exactly what it is. It's the, it's the things that you're not supposed to hear. It's sort of like the bedroom talk. And you can't take these things and just, uh, you know, record them and, and, and give them to, to anybody else because then it becomes pornography. So, so what do you do? Because there is something about this, this type of talk because we're not just talking about a relationship between us and God that's private. But it has a private element to it, but it also has a public element to it because 
the feeling that, or the, the experience that we have of, of godliness through through our covenant with God, with our unique covenant with God, is one that we just said has to or or carries with it a burden of responsibility for the rest rest of the world. It's sort of like a king and a queen. Can't, the queen can't entirely hide the fact that she has a special relationship with the king because. The reason we're interested in it, and we should see it, is because it does affect us in the sense of giving us an example of how you relate to the king. The relationship that the Jewish people have with God is an example for the rest of the world. It is something that the rest of the world needs to learn from. So on the one hand, I have this tremendous need to share it. On the other hand, there is something very intimate about it. So what do I do? The answer that I argued back then, and I think this is what the Rav has done in this book, is that I take the conversation and I apply it to those areas of the relationship that are pertinent and relevant to non-Jews. In other words, I'm taking the language of Kabbalah, but I'm applying it in a place, the seven Ohaid laws, that is relevant to each and every single non-Jew. So on the one hand, there is something of the intimacy that the Jewish people share with God, but it's presented in the context of something that's relevant to every single non-Jew. And I think that's a very important uh, thing to say, that as much as we have a bound of responsibility, it doesn't just mean opening up everything. I can't just let you enter the bedroom. It's not going to work, although because it's, 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 all, it's, it's embarrassing to to a certain extent, but more embarrassing to the person who's being brought in than it is maybe even to the person who's doing it, because maybe the person who's doing it thinks he's doing something right because it's so important to share what's going on. But it's very embarrassing. It's not the right way to do it. Amen. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Rabbi. And uh, since uh, we were talking about moving around in, in time and space, uh, we, we here in the physical realm on, on Israel National Radio, we have to deal with time um, b- because we are under the constraints of the clock, because we have to get out here and make way for another show. So thank you very much for an enlightening and a fascinating conversation about the works of uh, this particular book and uh, all matters pertaining to uh, Kabbalah. Ray, just before I throw it to you, I'd like to remind all of the listeners out there that uh, you are continuing your ongoing project to put together an album a CD full of original songs about the Noahide lifestyle, about the seven laws uh, of Noah and how they can impact the nations of the world and, uh, God willing, bring about world peace. So we'd like to remind uh, any of you out there who are a musician, who know a musician, who would like to contribute an original song to Ray's album that he's putting together, uh, contact Ray. Uh, you can contact him uh, here at uh, the station. Simply send it to Noah at Israel National Radio. I'm sorry, send it to Noahide at IsraelNationalRadio.com, and uh, they will send it along to Ray. And as we mentioned in a previous show when we talked about this project, all of the proceeds from the sale of this CD, full of these wonderful songs, God willing, will go to help the victims of terror. So send those along, and we'd love to hear them. And uh, Ray, I'll say goodbye and give it back to you. 
Okay, well, Jim, I appreciate it. And, Rabbi, it has been a fascinating discussion, and I've got a lot more questions for you. But in the meantime, for all of our listeners, please, please, please always look to the heavens for Hashem. Look to Hashem for your strength, because He is always looking out for you. We'll see you next week here on Noahide Nations, right here on IsraelNationalRadio.com. You mean to tell me you don't have an Art Scroll Talmud or Mishnah? You wouldn't be struggling through Shear so much if you had the easy-to-follow Art Scroll Talmud with English translation and footnotes. It's the perfect companion for the series Yeshiva student or for those just starting out. Get one now at 37% off, Art Scroll's biggest sale ever. Just go to www.artscroll.com slash arutz. That's A-R-U-T-Z. Every Art Scroll purchase helps Arutz Sheva, Israel National Radio. Art Scroll Books. Point. Click. Learn. The holiday of Purim celebrates the victory of the Jews over their enemies in the Persian Empire. After a turn of events brought about through the Jewish leaders Mordechai and Esther, the wicked Haman was hanged on the very same gallows he intended for Mordechai. Purim is celebrated with the reading of the Megillah, that is the scroll of Esther, dressing up in festive costumes, a festive meal, and giving gifts to the poor and to friends and neighbors. Purim begins this year at sundown, Tuesday, March 10th. The holiday is preceded by a fast day. Israel National Radio wishes its listeners a happy and meaningful Purim. 